All right, uh, friends, I am excited. Um, let me start by introducing uh, our guest. This is session two of the God and Money Theology Lab. We have uh, with us, let me just go ahead and spotlight them. All right, we have uh, with us Professor Hannah Andre. She's from North Park Theological Seminary. Uh, Hannah has been a guest on the Theology Lab. You can see her in the American Evangelicalism series. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much for being with us. Hannah does teaches ethics, theology, and then her real area is uh, is in history. Hannah, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation in particular and glad to be back with you. Our other guest is uh, Professor Cloutier. He teaches at Catholic University of America. Uh, also, a thanks to Hannah here for uh, putting his book on our radar, uh, The Vice of Luxury, Economic Excess in a Consumer Age. Uh, um, it's a really fantastic book. We're going to be talking about this category tonight. But um, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Professor Cloutier. Uh, we're just we're glad, we're glad to have you. Yeah, I'm super excited by the conversation. It's great to be here. Um, okay, so let me let me put uh, just kind of try to frame things here. Um, we are talking tonight about faith and then wealth and luxury. Um, when I first heard the thought about like, let's talk about luxury, uh, I was a little bit uh, I was like, yeah, I think this matters. I'm, I'm sure it matters. Um, after now spending a long time with this book, I think that there is something very, very important for us. And this is the way I'm seeing it. it look, at, on one side, we have like necessities. We, we, we need necessities in order to get by, in order to survive, right? So that's on one end. And on the other end of things are luxury. And one of the ways that Professor Cloutier uh, defines luxury is this kind of pursuit of, of surplus goods, extra things, things that are beyond our needs in an inordinate amount for our, for our pleasure, for novelty, especially as they come at the expense of others in their provision of a provision of their basic necessities right so we can pretty say that like you've got necessities on this side and then you've got luxury kind of is a bad thing on this side we can generally agree on that and then there's this huge space in between place of kind of surplus or comforts um that i think we're asking the big questions like what what do you do if you have what you need and that does that mean that anything beyond that is a no-go for Christians, right? I think the key question that we're asking, that we're trying to get at tonight, that I think we feel deep down within us, is this question, what is enough? And there's no formula for that question. You're not going to be able to come away with a clear answer about that. Uh, but I think you're going to get some, hopefully, some kind of wisdom, an idea about prudence that can help us to make hard decisions about how to live faithfully in that very gray space. All right, so let's get on to our, uh, our questions. Uh, please make sure that any questions that you have tonight for our guests that you send to Pastor Megan DeJong. She is uh, in, you can just find her right in the chat, send her a private message. She will collect all the questions and we're gonna give more time for our Q&A tonight. All right. Um, can I ask, Hannah, can I ask you to get us started and just to say, like, we're looking at faith, wealth, and luxury. Can you tell us just a bit, like, why does this topic matter to you personally? Yeah, sure. Um, so as someone who studies and teaches history, um, I'm often in conversations where, where 
looking back at obvious sins or failures of the church in the past. I think that's one common mode of thinking about history today. Um, and so I find myself wondering, um, what are the sins of the church today that future Christians are going to look back and say, you know, how could they possibly have done or thought X, Y, or Z and still confess to be Christians? And I suspect that it's not in any area where we've already named clearly sins of our own past and seen some of the outworkings of those actions. And so um, when I when I read sources from the early church or the whole pre-modern church, I see such a, a strike contrast, striking contrast between this universal rejection of the accumulation of wealth and the relative silence of the church today. Um, and so as I see those two, as I see um, economic disparities and our current um, largely unquestioned um, consumer culture that we participate in, um, I think without too much distinction from our larger culture as individuals, households, and congregations, um, you know, that's, it's really striking to me how much that contrasts with how much an out of an outlier we are with the rest of the church. Um, and so I'm really convicted by that um, and a bit concerned with the silence of the church, especially as we speak very um, loudly and frequently on other areas, you know, with less um, biblical witness. So it's something that I'm, I'm very convicted by. And when I think about justice, um, for, to move from thinking of justice in the abstract or areas that are just areas of thought and thinking, what does that, what, what's, what demands are placed on me in my day-to-day -day living and actions? I think that so many consumer choices are implicated. And so it's something just that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of my own life, um, lifestyle and, and daily choices and how that impacts a broader network. And also um, I'll stop here, but I think it's in, integrally connected to our ecological um, crisis too. So I think in those two related areas, we have a lot to, um, kind of account for as the church today. Yes, yeah, yeah, I hear that. Uh, David, David how, how about you? Well, uh, one of my father's favorite sayings was, money doesn't grow on trees. So in a sense, I had an interest in this topic from, from the very beginning. And, and certainly my family cultivated a, a kind of frugality and simplicity of lifestyle. I went to a, a, a high school with much wealthier people than I than I was and my family was. And uh, I had very little interest in pursuing that wealth. It, there was no allure to it. And so like like Hannah, I, I recognized as I started to study theology that the scripture and the early church were pretty clear about this as a huge problem. And yet here we were living in the richest country in the world, and we seemed to have no problem with it at all. So my particular interest in the category of luxury actually came about during the financial crisis in the late 2000s. 
uh, when I found myself wondering how the economy worked. Um, I, I, I was like, what in the world is going on? And I realized to answer that question, I really needed to understand more about economics. And I, I quickly came to understand that uh, uh, in, in conventional economics, there is this widespread perception that spending is good, right? Spending is good for the economy. Luxury is good for the economy. And I found myself having to kind of work through, is that really the case? And I would want to say it, it's it's not really the case. Um, but also then how can, how did Christians lose sight of the, the fundamental claims about the problem of luxury um, especially within an economy that was sending them the message that spending was good, it created jobs and, and those kinds of things. So that's what led particularly to the writing of the article in the book. Okay, thank you both for setting up the second question, both of you, as in going in, looking at the church's relationship to history, it's complicated. You start to explore this and you're like, oh my goodness, this has been said about money. Uh, so, okay, tell us from your understanding of church history, Christian history, what stands out to you about the church's relationship to money? Um, are there things that stand out to you about this history that you think are particularly relevant for us today? Let me kind of just put that out to either one of you and to see if one of you can just uh, can get us going on that. Yeah, um, so... My primary area is the early pre-modern church. Um, and in that, within that chronology, what's striking to me is how relatively uncomplicated the history is. Um, you know, there's a real uniformity of um, viewpoints. I mean, not that it, there are some some differences around the edges, um, but for the most part, there's a, a universal, um, condemnation of accumulating wealth um, for one's own um, security, greed, um, vanity, rather than using wealth to share with those um, in need. So, you know, the, the, obviously all Christians are reading the same text that we are. And so based on the teachings of Jesus, the, the, wealth, the possession of wealth is a real moral problem in the early church. Um, so maybe one helpful distinction, um, for the most part, the early church did not see wealth as intrinsically um, evil. I, the, in their economy, which is basically, I mean, for the most part, an agrarian economy, that wealth is like things from the earth, clothing, food, um, land. And so because it's created by God and all creation is good, those material realities are good, but their purpose is to meet our needs as material beings, to meet the needs of all creatures. So it's generally held um, in the early church that the purpose of creation is to meet the needs of all creatures and that God created the world with sufficient material goods to do that. So that the in, inequitable distribution is a result of sin and is a sign of sin. And so for early Christians, wealth is not intrinsically, um, it's morally neutral in itself, but its use, whether it's uh, righteous or sinful, depends on 
oh, sorry, it's whether it's righteous or sinful depends on the right use of wealth. And that is in conformity with the purpose, its original purpose. So, um, you know, it's sinful if someone uses um, wealth in order to just benefit themselves, right? whereas the purpose of, of using one's wealth is to meet the needs of others. Um, so that's uh, seen as like part and parcel with being Christian is actually distinguishing yourself by resisting conspicuous displays of wealth and instead participating communally in the pooling of resources in order to serve the poor. Um, so I'll start there and I could say more if either you have yeah. a question or you want to move on to. Hannah, I think you've said some interesting things there that we could come back to. David, let me give you a chance to chime in on this and we'll keep it going. Sure. I mean, just to illustrate the point, there are some zingers from the church fathers, like Ambrose uh, says, your fellow man is there naked and crying while you are perplexed by the choice of marble to clothe your floor. And I think about the marble countertops in our in our houses and the, the kind of attention that we give to these matters. Uh, it's so 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 strikingly clueless compared to that. But I, I think there are two points in the history uh, that are particularly relevant for us thinking about why we have lost this attitude. The, the first is the rise of what has been called the two-level ethic. Uh, the idea that there were two levels of Christianity uh, that was associated with the rise of monasticism in the early church um, th this is a situation that I sometimes call the Mother Teresa problem or the Francis of Assisi problem, the idea that there are these super Christians. And for them, of course, giving up all of their possessions and living with the poor and, 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 and avoiding luxury, of course, that is a, a part of the Christian path. But that's just for certain people. And for most people... And, and there, there's a kind of void. For most people, what? Uh, a few cans at the soup kitchen or something like that. So the rise of the two-level ethic, um, I think, creates a kind of problem in our minds where the prophetic teaching against wealth is something that a few people take care of rather than something that is a responsibility for the whole community as the, ch the early church fathers, pre-monastic, uh, uh, thought of it. The second problem occurs uh, in the 18th century, um, and this is associated with the point that I made before about changing thinking about economics. There, there is a kind of turn that suggests that societies will be better organized and will actually be better for everyone if people give up their preoccupations with passions and instead turn to self-interest. So there's an interesting distinction here between the passions, which are usually thought of as violent, you know, you're, you're thinking about the religious wars and various other kinds of conflicts that are going on in early modern society. And the idea is we should actually put our energies into something else, something more peaceful like commerce. <laughs> and many people start to start to think that in fact commerce is this kind of peaceful activity that if people are busy buying things that this in fact will lead them not to go to war with one another not to fight over other over other kinds of things 
And so the, the science of modern economics is kind of birthed in that context where the pursuit of luxury is seen as something that will drive economic growth for everyone. Um, and I, I think that Christians just kind of took that attitude in and still felt a little ambivalent, like too much wealth might, might be a problem. But on the whole, the fact that we're all able to, or many people are able to buy luxury items is a good thing and that it actually benefits everyone. And okay, Hannah, can I ask, Hannah, give you a chance to respond, but put out one question that I would love for someone to touch on here. Uh, actually, two. One is this, Hannah. You talked about the material. Like, the early church has this pretty. It doesn't see. It doesn't see material things as intrinsically evil. It's actually a fairly positive view. These are the things of God's creations to be used well. Is there like, is there a way of of of, is is there? Can we find value in that today? In that, and here I'm I'm reading in something into our conversation. There is a loss of this. Uh, material understanding of our of our importance of our wealth that has its whole history behind it, but really just like can we learn something about the goodness of our wealth that would of of of, of this material world that would give us a good positive vision of how to use money. Um, the second one is this, this between Francis of Assisi, right? Renounce everything, or and I'll just give a, a something here and there. Can you tell us like? how you see that in our minds today i think that's speaking to like a real struggle we have we don't know what to do when jesus says things like do radical things with your money as in giving half of it away to the poor kind of let me put it to you kind of responding to any of those and i'm thinking of three things okay well yeah let me let me say first um i think concurrently to what david is describing in this early modern period we're also seeing the privatization of religion right, in response to the wars of religions and so on and rise of reason as more universally and less conflictually arbitrating disputes. So I think with the rise of modern economy, we're also seeing a receding of a view of, of faith that has social, political, and um, economic implications um, intrinsically. So I think that's an important shift as well. Um, and even um, you'll know more about this than I do, Dr. Um, Kluchier, but um, with shifting understandings of private property, you know, as also uh, one symptom of individualization and privatization that rather than in the past private property being um, uh, bound to some notion of the common good and limited by that, that it becomes absolute. Um, we also haven't talked about if we're really going to shift like the the significance of the industrial revolution and you know the post World War II like just explosion of population and consumption and acceleration of um, of consumer spending within a global industrialized free market economy. So that's I'll put those as huge caveats between when we look at these pre modern sources and today. But as far as um yeah this uh um view of creation is good, I think it is essential for our recovery of a notion of, of our own nature as created beings with material needs, um, and also finite material beings. And similarly, of the created world as good and with limits that need to be respected. 
And so I think the early church's affirmation of the goodness of creation is something that even though, you know, I hear like a lot of um, stereotypes of the early church, like, oh, they're all platonic or they overly spiritualize things, whereas we really care about material reality because we're kind of materialistic. But I think, um, you know, whether we value creation um, and the and especially its limits, I think, is something that we need to revive today. Um, and I'll let Dr. Cloutier speak to the two level, because this is at the heart of his work, I think. Sure. I mean, I, I want to piggyback on this, though, and say that it, I spend a good amount of time in the book trying to develop a positive vision of sacramentality, about the idea that you can use your material possessions and your wealth as sacraments, you know, the very broad use of that term. But the idea is that you can use them in ways that glorify God and actually serve to build up community, right? But the, this is the opposite, in a sense, of luxury, because luxury is very much about using material wealth for yourself, and often to gain some kind of incremental advantage or, or relative status in relationship to other people. So if, if we can think about our spending sacramentally, the, the goal here is not to not spend. <laughs> the goal is to spend differently rather than spending on ourselves or rather than only thinking about maximizing our own accumulation. We can think about spending sacramentally. That is, we have an abundance of goods. We have a productive economy. How can that productive economy serve higher ends for the community rather than just serving the accumulation of our particular things. Um, um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think getting started on that question requires us to understand that the discussion can't be framed uh, in terms of absolute survival versus luxury which actually some writers in the 18th century try to frame it this way. And they say, oh, well, luxury is not a useful category because in fact, kind of everything is a luxury, right? We barely need anything for survival. But um, in, in fact, we need some kind of way of conceptualizing sufficiency or enoughness, um, whereby we can recognize the kind of material possessions that enable us to flourish that are instrumentally useful for higher ends of community and flourishing um, and distinguish those from other kinds of material possessions that are not actually directed towards those higher goods. Okay, so I wanna do on that is I wanna, I wanna bring in the third question. I'm gonna open this up to you for you to continue to talk as historians, although like if you just wanna to go to kind of your, uh, to just straight, hey, here's how this is a moral issue for us to think about, you can do that too. Um, how, this will be my kind of last, it's a couple questions, but my last questions before we get into the Q and A, help us cl get clear around seeing luxury as, is something for us to take serious is something as, as, as an issue to be concerned about as Christians. And then how do, and this is, I think the big question for tonight, what helps us think about sufficiency 
what helps us think about, you know, you talked about sufficiency and enoughness, David, mm -hmm. what helps us kind of like get there if we're like, all right, our basic needs are met, but we don't want lives that are governed by either luxury or just the desire for luxury, right? Which is everywhere. Right. We're always being told to move in that direction. So can you, either of you answer the problem of luxury, getting better, getting understanding sufficiency. And maybe there's aspects of church history, folks like sayings, people, movements, things that can help us to think about that as well. I want to kind of open up how you can answer this. Um, Hannah, do you want to try to go to speak to this first? I'm not sure that I do. Um, okay. I, <laughs> um, my mind is like some further back a little bit. Um, let me think for a second and you and sure yeah um, yeah do you yeah. want to jump in here yeah um, yeah so um uh, uh the there is a concept that some economists have developed called positional goods the argument is that once many people in a society get to a level where they have reliable food and water and shelter and enough clothing Right, that they they come to use their their abundance to seek positional goods, and the way I like to think about this is they start seeking the best, right? The best, and you could fill in the blank, right? The best this, and the the key to understanding why positional goods are such a problem is that there's no limit to seeking the best and that in fact in our society what what will happen when everybody or a large number of people seek the best is there will be these uh one economist calls them expenditure cascades whereby the best housing or the best schools become more and more expensive uh for the same for the same thing but it's because everyone is seeking some kind of maximized the best, um, that it doesn't actually produce shared prosperity. Um, so when, when people are seeking sufficient food, the market mechanism actually does work the way Adam Smith uh, meant it to work. That is people buying and selling and exchanging bread and, and the, more farms, more sales, more trade. It actually does produce enough bread for everyone. But what happens when you start competing for positional goods? Well, it's, a, it's essentially a zero-sum game. So to me, one of the most important things to think about in our society is the way in which we pursue positional goods with our wealth or even positional elements of our basic goods like housing is a great example that we seek housing in order to position ourselves relative to other people rather than just seeking housing that will serve the purpose of housing. Do, this is also where this can become incredibly difficult. I think there's ways where we can make serious progress Look, sitting down, looking at a budget, saying, wow, I'm way more prone to luxury in these areas than I imagine. I'll make personal choices to cut back. But what about when I realize I live where I live so I can try to be part of this better school system? And there's a lot of obviously very honorable reasons. You want the best for your children, but then you're also seeing if that comes at the cost of someone else. I just am curious, like at an on the ground level, are there things we can do that can help us make progress we try to 
get into this very uncomfortable place of positional goods. I do think part of that does have to do with our community and our kind of scope of relativity, um, you know, and who are we in community with? And is that a, um, are we crossing any kind of um, socioeconomic boundaries? Um, I think it's easy for us to think um, of plenty of people we see that are wealthier than us and therefore to let ourselves off the hook. Um, but we can also see the range of poverty in the world. And so I think I think that's one piece. Um, I think I, I between what's needed and what's luxury or positional goods, I think another area that we need to be thinking about is um, the the quality and novelty of goods. Like another huge issue is about convenience and like, for example, an area of fast fashion or where are we getting our food from? So I think the larger, some of the larger questions for us to be thinking through um, is, I mean, I think David made this comment, like the, the goal isn't for us to stop consuming, you know, that's a fantasy, recognizing that we need food, we need, you know, we need to consume to, to, to stay alive. Um, asking like, what does it mean to be a just consumer? Um, where are we, how are the goods that we're acquiring being produced? How are we acquiring them? How are they distributed? Um, how are we using them and uh, disposing of them in ways that um, minimize the exploitation of neighbors and of the earth? To put it as like, you know, in a kind of negative sense, which is maybe the best we can do, we could also ask, how can we, how can we acquire and use or distribute in a way that might contribute to the flourishing of our neighbor as well? But this question I think is essential, given that we are consumers, um, as individuals, but even as churches or as ministries, how can we be just um, consumers? Um, and I think sometimes I do think that like to try to get at the question of sufficiency in some complete way, maybe could be an evasion of the question where I think there's plenty of areas where it could be clear to us um, you know, that we're exceeding the the boundaries of the natural limits of our needs. Um, so I think starting, you know, is, is really important. Um, yeah, yeah I, I want to emphasize, you have to start somewhere. If if you don't start until you have a complete answer to the question, you you'll give up immediately. Um, the, the hopeful point is that people can look at their own lives and identify particular things that they put too many resources into, and then think about the trade-offs that they're making in order to consume those luxury items. So almost always the case is that we, I use the $6 latte as an example, because I think you should just drink simple black coffee personally. <laughs> um, but the, the $6 daily latte, right? Not a treat, but the $6 daily latte consumes a lot of resources and people often cheap out on other things. They look for cheap bargains that are made under exploitative conditions. They don't treat farmers well because they, they won't give up the $6 latte. So there are the, all those kinds of trade-offs in our lives that can be often small, but they can really move us towards a just economy. 
And then on a broader level, I would I would suggest that part of what we do in our society is we we steer our resources to some things rather than other things. And so in fact, we get better and better cell phones, smartphones, uh, incredible smartphones that do incredible things that we can't we can't even fathom. And yet we still know we don't have good schools. Like if we had good schools, a few people pursuing the best school, that would be okay because everybody has good schools. But we, we all know part of the reality here is that the premium that is put on housing and therefore good schools is because some of our schools are not good. And increasingly, I see this in medical care as well. People want the best medical care, which is, again, understandable. But part of the reason that they put enormous amounts of resources into seeking the best medical care is because there's substandard medical care in our society. Why don't we put our resources into making sure that there is a sufficient level of medical care across the whole society or across all schools, as opposed to the amount of resources that especially the upper middle class puts into improving luxury items that really could be deemed sufficient. Uh, David Hanna, I appreciate your responses here. Anything you want to touch on, we go into the Q&A, please bring it into play. Um, I'm going to go to the Q&A just so that we can give that at least 15 to 20 minutes. Um, let me just get us started with this question here. It's got a little bit of a description in the beginning, and then it gets to a, a succinct question. Uh, someone says here, earlier in my walk with Christ, I described myself as having a seared conscience when it came to spending. I felt a profound sense of judgment from God that spending beyond the most basic needs was wrong. And I felt and I felt I stumbled when I saw fellow Christians with nice things. I'm in a different and better place now, but I could easily go back there, given some of the implications that were of what we're talking about today. Here's the question. How do we find life in these teachings when it can feel like a finger pointed at our or our brother and sisters every decision this is like a big question this per someone's asking this i've heard it from someone else about listen anyone who makes progress here like super honorable you're, you're it's going to come at a cost and hopefully you find greater life but there's also kind of an easy way to get legalistic to start judging one another in this what, what wisdom do you have on on that yeah, definitely. There can be a tendency toward like a scrupulosity or, you know, over puritanical self-flagellation. I think I think it's important to to keep in perspective the goals of this. You know, it's not to be ultimately like our own self-righteousness, but the good of the whole community. And so I do think keeping it within the perspective of the the ultimate proper point of material goods is for the flourishing of all people. And so, you know, the point isn't just like to limit, 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 but to be in community and to and to share for the for the flourishing and, and same for ourselves. Like, I do think that the, the, the church rhythms of fast and feast are really important and that neither should be without the other. And so, you know, we we kind of live in a culture that is constant fa uh, feast, like it's constantly a celebration. And so I think the rhythms of fasting help us with our discernment and our character formation. But we can go too far the other way, too, where it's only only uh, fasting. And so celebration, feasting, um, celebrating the goodness of of um 
of food, of drink, of, you know, beautiful things, I think is, is really critical to keep the goals, the ultimate goal in perspective. Right. One of the categories I talk about in my book, when I'm talking about alternate ways of spending, I call it festival goods. And especially if those are shared, where you're you're celebrating with other people, I don't think Christians should be puritanical about those. I think there's a there's a great joy in those, but the key is to recognize that they're occasional, right? They're occasional celebrations for particular occasions, rather than something that you accustom yourself to day in and day out that you that you need, right? There's a certain addictive quality to comfort and luxury that we we constantly have to kind of press against it without becoming too puritanical. For me, the, the best example of this was uh, uh, for 10 years, I was on the board of directors of a consumer food cooperative in uh, Frederick, Maryland. I was so blessed to have that um, way of acquiring my basic necessities because this was something that had started out of like the back porch of somebody's house and they had built it into a $20 million store that was totally local, owned by 7,000 people in the community, right? And here I was on the board of directors of a grocery store. It, it made going to the grocery store joyful. I didn't mind spending money. I didn't look at the prices and say, am I getting the best price or something like that? Rather, I recognized I was part of something and part of something that I was sharing with others that was um, was very joyful. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think developing institutions and local community practices where we can use goods and share goods with one another in, in ways that we feel positive about is necessary for it not to tip into a, a kind of puritanical negativity. So I, I love the way that I'm hearing both of you, like Hannah, you talked about this way of dr drawing upon like these spiritual practices we have of, of feasting and fasting, putting them together as well. Oh, like both can be beautiful and self-correcting to to one another. Um, and even this notion, I love the way you, you uh, David, you complexify this by saying like, there's actually ways that avoiding luxury uh, could actually mean that we spend more on certain things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like, that should just get, help us think that this is not simply like, hey, strict frugality. That's, I mean, in a lot of places, yes, but it's complex. Let me let me get to this next question. Um, I'm going to say you only can answer this question if you are willing to uh, speak to it at a why it, why it bear how it bears in a very uh, practical way as well. You'll get it after I, I ask it to you because it's folks are thinking about it. I want to get it out there. The idea of rejecting the accumulation of private wealth and the diversion of these resources towards the common good seem reminiscent of fundamental ideas of communism. These ideals have led to some significant historical horrors like China's cultural revolution and other places, other areas, not to mention that many communist countries are simply failed states. How do these specific ideas presented in this form in our conversation differ from the ideals of communism? Um, answer that question, but then I want you to tell me like kind of like in your positive vision of where you're going with it, like, how does that bear? That's just just me in terms of I, I'm I'm mindful. I don't want our discussions to be about capitalism versus communism or socialism. I want us to always get to like what's at the heart of these questions and how do they matter on the ground? I mean, I would say, um, you know, a market economy 
with the control of prices being set by demand <laughs> rather than like at the government level in a communist state. I think I wasn't imagining, you know, the the latter, um, but I think even within a market economy, we should be asking. So I was only thinking about within our current economic state, how do we give in our consumer power um, think about being just consumers. So I do think as Christians that the scriptural conviction that all belongs to God and that the point of goods is for the sharing of all and that God is uh, care has special care for the poor and the prophetic um, the prophetic care for the poor and uh, condemnation of you know their oppression. I think we there's plenty scripturally that we need to look at in order to um, justify um, an ethic of common good. I think the Catholic social teaching does a better job than Protestants of articulating and defending that. But I think there's a wide gap between that Christian ethic and um, the political applications of communism as we know them in history, Russia or other China. Right. right. This is this is kind of a false alternative. And we we live in a context where we tend to think that we should let capitalism go crazy and then the government should come in and redistribute all of the proceeds in order to fix things. And both of those things are wrong. <laughs> both parts, the capitalism going crazy and the government coming in to do all of the redistribution. The alternative that is, is clear in Catholic social teaching is that we distribute the goods justly in the first place. <laughs> and when I say we distribute the goods justly in the first place, I mean, we people who own businesses, we people who are consumers, we who have some kind of wealth at our disposal, make just choices of distribution so that the role, the safety net role is minimal. Now, I don't want to be anti-government or libertarian. There clearly is a role for structures and safety nets. But in fact, if we did a more just job of distributing goods ourselves rather than seeking to gain everything uh, individually, uh, we, we would have less need uh, for, for government redistribution and management of the economy, which I, I agree doesn't actually lead to good outcomes. Okay, so this question here, I think will actually give you a chance to use kind of one example that could apply broadly. I want to think about the the kind of the interesting category of beauty and how we try, how we we consume beauty, um, you know, uh, and what is the value of beauty? Let me try to kind of put this in a more concrete question. Um, how do you how do you think about beauty and luxury, like versus like an an individual painting in your in your in your house that you yourself might get to enjoy um, versus maybe contributing to like uh, a, a community project that many are going to enjoy. Where do you like, how do you think about limits with this? How do you think about ways where it's okay to spend a lot or not to spend a lot? Um, can you speak to this, this specific example? Um, uh... Uh, first, I, I, I hope that we can appreciate beauty in nature first, 
uh, uh, Hannah mentioned at the beginning, the ties of this issue to environmentalism and the limits of consumption of, of the Earth's resources. Um, and I think if, if we can't see the beauty in the natural world around us, even in urban spaces, um, I think it will be difficult. <laughs> I, I think we will have difficulty with anything downstream from that. But certainly, I think downstream from that, the extent to which we can think about beauty in, in terms of a shared good um, uh, is very important. I resist the people who say that we shouldn't build beautiful churches. That somehow the fact that we have beautiful churches is an affront and that we should give the money to the poor. I am much happier to say, look at your own house <laughs> and ask the question about whether there are excessive resources used there. But if we build beautiful churches, hopefully they are telling us something about how much we love God and uh, uh, functioning as shared spaces that can, can uplift us. Um, so I, I I would definitely steer in the direction of saying, look, figure out how to make that appreciation public and shared. I think that beauty plays a significant role in ethics. Um, I think whether it's individual choices or communal choices that we um, we are motivated. By beauty more than guilt. Um, so I'm even tying back to the other other question. I mean, that's certainly been true in, you know, you think of um environmental, you know, pictures of utter plastic littering the, you know, the the as opposed to like I think they call it the Attenborough effect, like looking at um all of the um Green Planet movies has been more um more effective in motivating people to preserve what is beautiful. And I think even in, you know, some of these consumer choices, um, I know we've talked a lot about luxury and I think, um, David, that your account of it um, incorporates issues of quality in terms of um, cheap planned obsolescence, those kinds of areas. But, you know, something even like thinking of a throwaway culture, like I think it's ugly to have cheap dishes, for example, rather than some permanent beautiful dishes. So so I think that beauty is an important category, whether it's um, individual choices or um, collective projects. Um, and And I don't know if I would... I don't know if I would make a real too too firm of a distinction between the individual and the and the corporate, though certainly as with all institutions, whether libraries or parks or other works of art, that I think having having an emphasis on the corporate is appropriate. I don't well, know if that answers the question. When I finally bought a, a grown-up person's bed, I decided I would buy a bed that was handmade by someone in West Virginia. And it was very simple. It's not like super complex, but I was like, look, this is better than going down to Ikea and buying the bed in part because I was like, this is, <laughs> this is the bed, right? Um, and, and I still have that bed. I, I would hope that I can pass that bed on perhaps. 
to future generations. And it is, it's beautiful. It's simple, but it, it's a beautiful thing. And so that might be another example of, of um, uh, something that is expensive, but is not necessarily a luxury. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead. Finish up on this one. No, um, just want to like introduce the category of like differentiated responsibilities because I think there are like there is um a real important um caveat in a lot of this conversation of like what options are actually open to individuals, right? It's highly contextualized. Um, but I think in some sometimes in this conversation, the conversation tends toward a kind of deontological, like either this rule has to be available to everyone or it's not an obligation for some people. And so I do think it's important for us to recognize different opportunities um, and therefore associated responsibilities. So I just want to put that out there. The bed made me think of it. <laughs> I'm going to try to respond to it uh, in just a minute. Um, how do we think about luxury and you know in your book uh professor Cloutier, you 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 go so far as actually naming a a possible standard of living with some flexibility depending on where, where you are it's this kind of baseline meeting necessities and then what goes beyond that but then there is this these two there's two big categories right there is there is retirement and uh and then things like saving for college and those get tricky because you can think about doing those things to take burdens off of other people um, and yet that is money for yourself. How do you uh, even go about starting to think about, about those kinds of things? I think this is a place where I would hope that churches can start to think communally. Like one of the difficulties in our society is that we tend to think we have to take responsibility for ourselves or perhaps the government or the state has responsibility. But there's no reason why churches and church communities couldn't start thinking about how to pool resources in a way that would make us less dependent on uh, things like retirement accounts and especially visions of retirement accounts having to be into the millions of dollars in order to have a sufficient retirement. Um, so the, I, I, I think those are collective problems, but collective problems that churches first and foremost should start thinking about together. The Amish, we don't have to be the Amish, but they have a really good example for us on these issues. This is something I don't have a good answer to, and it's something that like keeps me up at night. I get very anxious thinking about our whole global economy <laughs> and retirement. I mean, when even choosing investment options, like you know, you can you can choose like the ethical package, which doesn't even mean that much. It's like, you know, companies that don't provide contraception or I mean, it's not anything about like uh, worker rights, but even that it's like the returns are so much lower. So you're like, what am I supporting? I mean, I think by virtue of our participation, whether as church, I mean, as churches too, right? Like, I mean, whole denomination schools, like we are all enmeshed in this global economy. And I have a lot of conversations that I want to have. Actually, I need to come back when Paul Hawkinson is on um, to think through like how do we think about that ethically? And I and I, you know the way I began was thinking about how we how we make judgments of Christians in the past and think like well of course I wouldn't have done that, but it's you know we have options but they're not without cost and I don't know I really I really wrestle with that personally. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your honesty about that. If you do find there are examples or stories or any resources that you think are good ways forward on this, you know, share them with me. I'll share them with our group. Um, most, I think, I don't know, most, for hype, most important question of the night coming at you. This is our final question before we go to our breakout discussion groups. Um, just by nature of how difficult this topic can be when we think about going into it, um, what gives you hope? Um, what makes you think that, you know, just, Hannah, there was just something that when you were talking about limits earlier, and I can't, I'm trying to remember the context in which you couched it in, it was, there, there was the sense of like, oh no, these limits are good for us. And, and there's, there's a positive vision behind that. Something about what Christ tells us as finite creatures, that there's something good in giving. What gives you hope? What makes you think that taking luxury serious and it's the ways it can deform us is, is worth doing? Oh, what gives me hope? Oh, this, this, this might not be that helpful because I want to reverse the question and be like, what keeps me from despair? <laughs> no, I, cause I, cause I do think sometimes, you know, it can be very overwhelming when you look at really large systemic, um, systemic issues, um, when individual action or even communal action can seem like very inconsequential. So some of the things I guess that give me hope are, um, or, keep me back from despair is recognizing, um, trying, trying to resist false choices. You know, there's not a choice between, um, structural or individual action. Um, I think that what matters is, um, most fundamentally obedience and that it's in obedience, um, to our, um, nature as we were created to be as human creatures. Um, and as the abundant life that Jesus calls us to, um, you know, that I think that is the most fundamental thing. If nothing changed, I think that is still, um, you know, a, um, something that is um, required of us and not just required as like an external obligation, but actually is a path toward the fulfillment of our deepest um, nature as creatures, um, material creatures and um, communal creatures because I think you know it's it's ultimately not just about our own um comfort or convenience but it is about a flourishing community and our role in that community and our witness as Christians um to that hope that we have of what abundant life actually is and it's not a life of you know un unfettered <laughs> um consumption or acquisition um yeah yeah what gives me hope is that we don't have to wait for some bill to pass in the legislature in order to do something about this problem we we all can act now individually but also hopefully in our in our churches to discern ways forward to to live differently to bring the loaves and fishes i always love the loaves and fishes story because five loaves and two fish. How, why would you bring that forward to feed 5,000 people? But you've got to bring the loaves and the fishes. Um, and uh, it's also that people like you and all of your listeners here are interested in this topic. They 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 perk up their ears and say, there's, there's some problem here. There's some disconnect 
between the life of discipleship and the ordinary life that that many upper middle class Americans live. So that gives me hope that that people can see that there's a problem and that we can all take steps to address it, even if they seem <laughs> hard given the scale of the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, just to say, I hear both of those things that there's a there's an amazing way here in which faithfulness in in giving can opens up a new new ways to freedom. Um, and how we recognize there's something that is, is missing here and, and, and we think that there's opportunity. I'll just say, I'll add my own response to this. I look out and I can see actual like screens of people here. Uh, these are congregants within the High Rock congregations who are uh, being forthright about their spending with one another and asking, how do we be more faithful here? Like they are the encouragement to me. They're like, the, I look at that and think, oh, like, like, just try to, just try to, I just need to treat it, try to keep up here because God is clearly working and doing stuff. So there's examples of the saints to keep us going. Um, Friends, uh, this brings us to the end of session uh, two in the formal part of our discussion. If you could just uh, thank uh, Dr. Andre and Dr. Cloutier for joining us for a wonderful conversation.